Well, our sermon text this morning is from Psalms. Uh, it's Psalm 31. Please get your Bible and turn there. Um, as you're doing that, though, let me share greetings from Coram Deo Church. Um, I love God's Word. I treasure His people. And so to share His Word with His people in another place uh, is uh, certainly a, a blessing and a delight to me. And so thank you. But greetings from your brothers and sisters just uh, 30 minutes from here at Coram Deo Church in Omaha. Uh, and I'm really glad to be here uh, with you. So again, our sermon text is Psalm 31. This is a psalm of King David. And I think it has something to say to us, especially modern American Christians, about this important topic of emotions and feeling. In his classic book on spiritual formation, um, Dallas Willard makes a profound observation about feelings in the modern world. Let me read a quote from that book. He says, in the modern condition, feeling will come to exercise almost total mastery over the individual. This is because people in that condition will have to constantly decide what they want to do, and feeling will be all that they have to go on. And here lies the secret to understanding contemporary Western life and its peculiar proneness to gross immoralities and addictions. People are overwhelmed with decisions and can only make those decisions on the basis of feelings. And I wonder if you can resonate with that idea of an overemphasis on feelings. And I wonder if maybe you've seen that in your own life, the tendency to base important decisions on how you feel about it, or maybe you've seen that temptation in other people around you. Now, in a previous generation, some of you look like you probably would remember these days, if, I can't be, if I'm not offensive in saying that. Uh, I'm going to make enemies right at the beginning here. Uh, in, in, in a previous generation, you, people would have known what was good and right to do without having to appeal to their feelings. But in a situation such as today, by contrast, where people have or at least think they have to make all the decisions about their lives because rule, ro established roles and rituals and traditions are absent. So we feel like we have to make all of these decisions about what is good to do in life. In that kind of situation, the easiest way to decide, it seems, is based on how you feel. And we're told, in fact, that how you feel ought to determine your obligations, uh, your roles to other people, and even your own personal identity. Feelings, it seems, in the modern world are king. Now, uh, this, this causes Christians to fall into two opposite errors. Okay? So on the one hand, like the world around us, we may give feeling too much authority to determine who we are and what we give ourselves to. Okay, so that's one error. The opposite error, though, would be to, in, re in reaction to that emotionalism of our day, to double down on right beliefs and to disregard the fact that God has made us as whole people and we're meant to experience the whole range of human emotions, and that's part of what it means to be a human being. So God wants to set us free from both of those errors, overemphasis over on feelings and underemphasis on feelings. He wants to set us free from both of those mistakes. Because spiritually mature Christians learn to express their emotions honestly and openly, but they're not led by them. Unfortunately, we have ancient wisdom from the scriptures to help us navigate those difficult waters. And specifically, Psalm 31 is particularly helpful to us because we find David, the writer of this psalm, trying to hang on to what he knew to be true, despite the fact that his feelings were making that difficult. And we can see that that's the tension that he's feeling right at the beginning of the psalm. So look at verse 2 and 3. 
He says, incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Now that's an odd progression of thought, isn't it? Look at that again. It's kind of an odd way to progress in thinking for him because he's saying, God, be a refuge for me because you are a refuge for me. So if God is David's refuge, then why is he petitioning him to be his refuge? And what does that suggest about what's going on in David's soul as he writes this? Well, I think it's this. I think he's, he's wrestling with something. He's trying to reconcile the, the attention that his circumstances of feeling are, his circumstances are that he feels exposed and vulnerable and attacked by his enemies. And he's trying to reconcile that with his belief that God's promise is that he would be his protector his rock of refuge. And so this psalm, I think, is teaching us something about how to walk forward in faith when our feelings seem to contradict our beliefs. Do you get that? Okay, it's teaching us something valuable. If we look at what David does here, we're going to see how to walk forward in faith and confidence whenever our beliefs don't seem to match our feelings. So perhaps one of these statements hits home for you. Maybe you believe in God's promise that those who fear the Lord will never be put to shame. And yet what you feel on a daily basis is shame. Or perhaps you believe that God is sovereignly ruling over all of time and over all the universe, and yet what you feel is an unhealthy amount of angst about our culture or our politics. Or maybe you believe that God is capable of turning suffering and evil into good. You believe that that is true, but what you feel, all that you feel today is pain and a bubbling sense of resentment and bitterness because of that pain. Or maybe you believe that God is a faithful provider, but what you feel daily is fear and dread that the money will run out. You believe that God is one of, a God of peace who has promised to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus but what you feel is you're anxious all the time. Well, that tension, friends, is a normal part of the Christian life. That's not an attack. It's a normal part of being Christian to feel that kind of tension, but it can certainly be disorienting and even disheartening. And in this psalm, David models, I think, three practical steps for keeping our faith in such moments. Okay, those steps are complain honestly, rehearse the truth, and surrender everything into God's hands. And so we'll walk through those points individually, and then we'll spend some time uh, applying them in the last part of the sermon. Okay, so number one, complain honestly. So like many moments in David's life, if you've read some of the scriptures, you know the Psalms, maybe you've read the books of Samuel, you know that there's a lot of things happening in David's life. Often he's being under attack, and this instance is no different. It seems that like many other moments in his life, David's uh, other people are scheming against David. So verse 4 says, take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. And it seems that the, those schemes likely involve some kind of public slander, because in verse 1 he says, let me never be put to shame. Okay, so David's primary request to God in the psalm is really obvious. He's saying, God, be my rock, be my fortress, my protection in these troubling circumstances. And he's asking this because he feels vulnerable and attacked. Okay, so notice the emotional language, though, in his description. In the middle of that psalm, there's this, this, this section, verses 9 to 13, where he has this very emotional appeal. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. 
My eye is wasted from grief. He's crying. My soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street, they flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who's dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. This long complaint sounds a bit like an overly dramatic teenager, okay? No offense to teenagers, overly dramatic or otherwise, in the room. Uh, Okay, but this is in the Bible, okay? This is in the Bible. And this is specifically in the part of the Bible that is meant to teach you how to pray. So you can conclude from that that God can deal with your honest and emotional rants, like he did with David. So David's being completely honest here with God about his emotional state. He's not trying to touch it up to make himself look strong or to look less sinful. Uh, So look back again, for example, at verse 12. He says, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. Okay, friends, factually, this statement is just not true. It's not true. It's very likely that David is still the king as he's writing this. He's not been forgotten like one who is dead, but what he's saying is that he feels insignificant. He's expressing his emotional state to the Lord. He feels insignificant, having no more worth than a cracked pot that is useless because it can't hold any water. And so, friends, the Bible paints a high view of emotions. I mean, think about it. Jesus walked into the wake of his friend Lazarus, and he wept. Emotions are dripping from every psalm, not just Psalm 31. Look at a different psalm, Psalm 56. This is what it says, David again. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. So friends, God does not overlook the fact that anxiety kept you tossing in your bed last night. Much less is he angry at you for feeling that. Okay, and listen, because I love and I cherish my kids, I collect their artwork. Even the, even the bad stuff, right? What does God collect? He collects your tears. Does that sound like a father who does not want to hear what's going on in your soul and would be angry at you for expressing what you're feeling? No, of course not. God wants to hear uh, your emotions. Okay, so uh, we're all formed by our histories and our stories, Okay, so it may be that you had a parent or some other authority figure in your life that maybe chastised you for displaying emotions. Or maybe it's for some other reason, but maybe you tell yourself that, hey, Christians shouldn't have these feelings. And so you tend to push those down. You tend to repress those emotions. And if this describes you, I want to invite you, with the authority of the scriptures behind this, I want to invite you uh, to begin practicing the spiritual discipline of journaling. And every day you write down what you're feeling honestly to the Lord because he can handle your emotions. He's not afraid of them and neither should you be. Okay? So the Bible has a high view of emotions. We're not meant to bury them. Okay? But, important but here, but contrary to the modern view, contrary to cultural values in our time, our feelings don't get the last word. Okay? We subject them to the truth, 
So that brings us to the second point here, which is that David rehearses the truth in this psalm. Okay, there are many helpful ways of getting the truth back into your soul, into your mind. Okay? You could dwell on the character and the nature of God. You could meditate on scripture perhaps that you've memorized or quote that scripture to yourself. Here, though, David's strategy is to dwell on his past encounters with God. And so let's look at two instances of this in Psalm 31. First one begins in verse 5. David says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me. O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy in the past. You have set my feet in a broad place. What's, what's he doing here? What's he, what's he doing? He's reminding his soul of past experiences of God's provision and protection. It's as if he's saying, I've been here many times before. Afflictions, slander, uh, attack from my enemies. I've been here before, and you, God, were my rock of refuge then. Therefore, I am confident that you will be faithful to me again. Okay, right after these verses, he goes into that emotional teenage rant we saw a moment ago, but then he immediately reflexes back to remembering other instances of God's faithfulness. So jump to verse 21, the second instance of rehearsing the truth. He says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. So he's recounting some very specific instance in his mind. I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. So by recalling this specific instance, David is rehearsing the truth that, listen, the children of God, the children of promise, are never cut off from God's provision and his strong arm. If he can turn a besieged city into a place of refuge for David, which apparently he did at one point, then there is no place that God's children are cut off from his protecting hand. And that's a truth he needed to be reminded of. And he was working that truth back into his soul. Okay, so to summarize so far, okay, summarize what we've said so far. First, David senses his feelings are telling him that the hand of the enemy is about to take hold of him. And he complains honestly to God about how he's feeling about that situation. And then second, he orients himself toward the truth by reflecting back on God's past faithfulness. Okay, and then finally, this allows David to, third, surrender everything into God's hands. So in this psalm, between the complaints and the recollections and the requests are a a few profound expressions of trust. And let's look at two of those in verse 5 and in verse 15. Verse 5 says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Verse 15, My times are in your hands. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Let me, let me offer just four very brief observations about these two expressions of surrender. Okay? Number one, David is making a decision. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Surrendering is not passive. It is active. It is a choice. In other words, he, David is activating his will. And when I say will, I mean the part of you that makes choices about what you will and will not do. Surrendering is an active choice of the will. Okay, secondly, David's surrender flows not from his feelings, but from the truth, okay? from his past experiences with deliverance. So in verse 5, he says, you have redeemed me. 
Okay? Or it's also based on the character of God. He says, O Lord, faithful God. His surrender is not based on what he feels, but on the truth. And somewhere along the way, I think we Christians have gotten the idea that blind faith is somehow more pleasing and better than well-reasoned faith. But friends, let me tell you, I don't think that that's right. I think God has given you plenty of evidence to tell you that he is for you and is out for your good and he can be trusted and therefore it pleases him whenever we remember all the reasons why we have to trust the Lord. Okay, third observation. What is David surrendering? Well, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he says, my times are in your hands. So times and spirit, what are these words getting at here? Well, times is plural in verse 5. And it implies that surrender, that he's surrendering in all the variety of seasons that God has planned for him in this earthly life, whether seasons of distress and discomfort or seasons of relative peace and prosperity and happiness. The idea of surrendering his spirit probably refers to, the spirit here probably refers to the animating life that God breathes into every human being. So to surrender our spirit is to say, God, I trust you for everything in life and even in death. And so the point then of these statements of faith is that David is surrendering completely. Okay, fourth observation about these verses is that, and this is maybe the most important, what is David surrendering to? Did you see it? Okay, what is David surrendering to? God's hands. Into your hand I commit my spirit. My times are in your hand. It's the perfect image, is it not? The hands of God, is it not the perfect image of both strength and gentleness? Strength on one hand because the, the, the people of this time, David, the Israelites, would have seen, known that God's hands are what formed the universe. They would have known that his hand is what parted the Red Sea. His hand is what protects the vulnerable. Okay, his hand is the active agent of his strength. And all of the stories that, these, uh, that ancient Jews and we today would see, God's hand is strong. But his hands are not merely strong. Consider how how intimate and tender and fatherly the image is of God putting his hands around you. So Christian friend, this attitude of David here is what we should be shooting for. Our willing surrender of every season of life, even of our life itself, into the strong yet gentle hands of God. Okay, so how do we walk forward in faith when our feelings seem to contradict our beliefs? We complain honestly, we rehearse the truth to ourselves, and then we surrender everything into God's hands, okay? So here we have, I'm going to do a tiny bit of philosophy, okay? Here we have three important elements of human nature. Do you see this? We have emotions, thoughts, and the will, okay? Emotions are feelings, our thoughts and beliefs, And then our will, the part of us that's actually choosing what we will and will not do. Emotions, thoughts, and will. And I want you to see that walking with God in faith involves all three of those parts of our human nature. Okay, so consider this analogy to kind of help this make, this philosophy make a bit more sense, okay? So consider sailing for a moment. Okay, sailing a boat requires wind. But the pilot of that boat does not simply go where the wind blows. He adjusts the sail and the rudder to properly orient the boat towards his intended destination. Okay? So that's the image. Okay, now emotions are like the wind. They animate our life and they push us in certain directions. Our will 
like a skilled sailor, must recognize when feelings are blowing us off course and apply the rudder of truth in order to keep us moving towards a life of faith and obedience. Okay? In the book that I mentioned earlier from this author, Dallas Willard, he has another great quote here about how feelings, the mind and the will, are inter- interrelated. So let me read his quote, and then I'm going to try to tell you what I think the important thing to take away from it is. Okay? He says, To choose, one must have some object or concept before the mind and some feeling for or against it. There is no choice that does not involve both thought and feeling. On the other hand, what we feel and think is, or it can and should be, to a very large degree, a matter of choice in competent adult persons who will be very careful about what they allow their mind to dwell upon or what they allow themselves to feel. Okay, so Willard is saying two really important things in this statement, okay? Number one, first, okay, you cannot ignore your feelings or fail to, to, to cultivate proper beliefs if you want to have a will that is aligned with God's will. You must attend to your beliefs and you must attend to your emotions if you want to be your will to align with God's. Okay? In sailing terms, even the most skilled sailor is sunk, so to speak, without wind to propel or rudder to steer. The life of faith requires attention to thoughts and to feelings. Okay? The second thing that he's saying here is kind of taking the opposite look at this. You can, though, you need thoughts and feelings in order to choose anything, but you can choose what to think and, yes, believe it or not, even what you feel. Okay? Just like the skilled pilot trims the sails to drive the boat in the chosen direction, you can choose. Your will can orient you, your thoughts and your feelings. Now, this is not immediate, of course, so shaping how our emotions respond to circumstances, it takes time and repetition. So let's take, let's talk then. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about how can we take charge of our emotions like David does in Psalm 31. Okay, so here's the way I'd like you to think about this, okay? Does your mind ever get caught in a loop? Okay, you're thinking the same thing over and over and over again. Well, friend, let me tell you that that loop is almost always driven by some emotion. It may be worry or fear or longing, and that loop is a good sign that emotions and not truth are driving your boat at that moment, okay? By habitually allowing feelings to direct your thoughts, your mind has developed certain ruts which often lead in the wrong direction. Okay, so for instance, personally speaking here, okay, occasionally I'll say or do something foolish that diminishes my reputation um, with someone whose opinion I value, okay? That happens to me quite a bit, uh, it seems, and um, okay. Um, So what I feel in that moment, what do I feel in that moment? What I feel is regret, and to some extent that regret is warranted. The problem is I can't let go of that regret. My mind keeps replaying that conversation again and again and again, and every time it comes with a new pang in my gut of of regret and a new cringe on my face, and I say, why did I say that? And then you know what I tend to do? Is I tend to avoid that person. Okay, so what do I do to get out of that loop? Okay, well, in my case, the truth that I need to rehearse is, A, people are not judging me based on one statement that I make. Okay, there's a reality check here. Like, you're not forming your opinion based on one thing that I said, okay? But then secondly, and far more importantly, 
My worth and identity is not based on what they said, what they think, even if they do think bad of me. I am not defined by that. And so the truth I rehearse to myself, and I, I'm, I'm not kidding, I do this, literally, I'll say this out loud to myself, Kevin, you are a child of the Most High God. You do not need their approval. I rehearse that truth to myself. I need to diligently, intentionally rehearse those truths. And by allowing those truths to correct my initial emotional response, I'm then free to move toward that person, not away from them, in loving relationship rather than avoiding them. Okay, and then what's more, what's even better than that is that if I do move past my regret and then towards that person, then I begin to form new habits of thinking and feeling, new ruts, if you will, so that the next time that I do something foolish like that, I have more charge of my emotional response to those feelings. And so friends, into your hands, Lord, I commit my reputation. Let's take another example. Anxiety. Okay, many of you in this room feel anxious, and those loops of anxiety can be crippling. And if you're a parent, to just use maybe one example here of a possible source of anxiety, if you're a parent, maybe perhaps you're experiencing anxiety about your school, your child going back to school this fall. Maybe it's a kindergarten kindergartner going to school for the first time. Maybe you're sending a child off to college. Uh, but there's a particular worry that you have about that transition, and you can't stop thinking about your inability to control what will happen to them when they're outside of your, your immediate care. And how do you exit that loop, that loop of worry and anxiety about that? Well, Psalm 31 invites you to rehearse the truth, okay? A few things that you might rehearse. A, okay, God has already seen your child through so much. Bring specific instances of provision and protection to mind because you need to remember what God has already done. Okay, number two, God cares for your child far more than you do. It is far more capable of protecting them from whatever it is that you're fearing than you are. Okay, and then number three, it is God's design that your child grow in their independence from you. Into your hands, Lord, I commit my children. And each time we rehearse that truth and release them into God's hand, we form new habits of feeling and of thinking so that the next time that emotion arises, it has less control over you. So friends, what truth do you need to have on hand in order to counter the anger that you know that you're going to experience later on this week? Or the loneliness? Or the boredom? Or the lust? or the hopelessness? Are there memories that can reorient you when you experience what you know you will experience in the near future? And if you're able to identify your emotional loop, but you're not sure what truth, maybe what scripture you could preach to yourself in that moment, that's okay. Uh, that's a good start. Maybe you want to talk to your pastor, your small group leader, about what kinds of truth could help you get out of those loops. Well, friends, here is what God wants for us. He wants us to be people who feel genuinely, but who are not driven by our feelings. He wants us to be people that, like David, who can walk forward in faith and even trust, even when our feelings are saying something different than what we know to be true in our minds. And here's the amazing news. Okay, this is the most amazing news, that he hasn't just told us that we should be like this. He has given us everything that we need to make it possible. If you still doubt whether you have a future free from worry or anxiety, 
If each are free from sadness or shame or fear or regret or some other feeling, if you doubt that you have a future where you will be free of those things, you need to hear God's word to you from 2 Corinthians. Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 5? He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and behold, the new has come. If you're a Christian, you have been born again. And friends, what is the nature of that birth? There's lots that we could say, but let me say it this way. The nature of that birth is Christ is now in you, and you are in Christ. Your new birth means you are united with Christ. Okay, I bet, I bet a few of you realize this, okay, that this is not only the prayer of David. This is the prayer of Jesus himself. He's saying Psalm 31. He would have known all of these psalms. He would have recited them and sang them. to himself. The psalms were his prayer book, no doubt as all the ancient Jews would have been. And this particular psalm was so familiar to him that just before he took his last breath, he quoted it. And why would this psalm have been on his mind when he's hanging on the cross about to give up his life? Why would this psalm have been on his mind? Well, friends, probably because he had been reciting this to himself all night before in his prayer, his overnight prayer meeting with the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you look at the account of the garden, Jesus exemplifies in that garden the exact pattern that we have talked about and that we have identified from David's psalm. The exact pattern shows up here. Okay, So think about his feelings. He did not feel like going to the cross. Right? He's in the garden. He does not feel like going to the cross. He's pleading with the Father, if there's another way, let me avoid this. He cried. He was afraid. He was so distressed, the Scriptures tell us he was sweating blood. Okay, and then he honestly shared all of these emotions with the Father, and how great that the Scriptures don't hide that from us. Jesus was emotional with the Father, openly. Okay? But he did not stop at these emotions. Okay? He rehearsed the truth. He meditated on Scripture. Psalm 31, probably. Psalm 22, for sure. He was meditating on God's truth. And then, not my will, but yours be done. He surrendered his will to the Father. Now, if you have been united with Christ by faith, this has two enormous implications for your life. Okay, are you ready? This has huge implications. First, consider all the times that you have failed to process your emotions in a healthy way. Okay, you have failed to conform them to what's true and to surrender your will. Your anxiety has spun you out of control. Your shame has, has caused you to go into isolation from other people. That feeling of momentary happiness has caused you to nurture that pet sin. If you are in Christ, the Father graciously forgives those failures. He doesn't keep a record of your wrongs. He looks down at you in those moments of failures and he sees not your failure, but he sees Christ with bloody sweat on his face saying, not my will, but the Father's be done. He made the one who knew no sin to be sin so that you and I would become the righteousness of God in him. The first piece of the good news of Jesus doing this well is that he covers your failures in this regard. But second, because Christ took charge of his feelings in the garden, so can you. The gospel offers not merely forgiveness of past wrongs, but also power to become like Christ. If it is the case that Christ lives in you, and you are therefore being formed into his image, then the life of the one that faced crucifixion and God's wrath and yet walked forward in faith, surrendering his will to the Father, that life fills you. He is in you. 
Worry, boredom, shame, fleeting happiness, these feelings ultimately have no power over the Christian. So yes, yes, you were made to authentically feel the entire spectrum of human emotions. But in the end, you are called and empowered by Christ to walk in truth. And let me pray for you that God's Spirit would help you do exactly that. Well, God, we marvel at your creativity. We are complex creatures, are we not? <clears throat> With thoughts, emotions, we have a body and soul and spirit. And your desire for us is that each of those dimensions would be perfectly aligned with the chief end of man, that we would glorify you and enjoy you forever. So have mercy on us, Father, because uh, the world and the devil and our sinful flesh have distorted that design. Where our feelings have gotten the upper hand, would you bring truth to our minds? Help us escape those loops that make it hard to hold on to you. And where we have given up or given in, would you fill us with the power of Jesus himself? We pray in his name. Amen.